Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. All right, I want you to grab your Bibles with me right now and turn to Isaiah chapters 24 and 25. Isaiah's, Isaiah chapters 24 and 25. This weekend has been just such an exciting weekend so far for our church as we've been rolling out missions, uh, priorities, and vision for this whole year. We had an excellent men's breakfast yesterday morning and a ladies' dessert night in the evening. Today we have the focus this morning and then the lunch together. It's going to be fantastic. So as you're turning to Isaiah 24 and 25, I want to give a little bit of context for you so you understand where we are in Isaiah and why this text matters to us today. Last fall, we engaged in a series called The Story of God and Five Trees. And that series was uh, intended to help us understand two things better. Number one, the whole story of scripture, its narrative, how it works, and the gospel message in a bit more of a succinct kind of way. And the way we went through that is by identifying five significant trees that appear in scripture. Some of you will remember these and recognize these. They'll be on the screen for you to see as well. The first tree that we find is in Genesis. It's the tree of life. It's a tree where God says, you need this to live. I've created you, but if you choose me and want to live in dependency, then come and eat of the tree of life. There was a second tree in the garden, and it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if, if you've, you know, I'm going to just go over it quite quickly now. If you missed that series, I'd encourage you, especially on this second tree, to go back and re-watch that particular message. Because out of all of them, it, it would be the tree that there's the most curiosity or unfamiliarity with. But the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some of us wonder, well, why was it even there? It seems like once uh, humanity ate of it, everything fell apart. Well, yes, God said, there is a tree here. If you eat it, you will die. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Some of us might have liked for God to hide that, that tree somewhere up in the Himalayas or something like that, so it would take several thousand years for any human to finally find it. But God put it in the center of the, tree, uh, of the garden, right next to the tree of life. Why did he do that? One tree produces life, one produces death. It's because God believes in relationship. And relationships require freedom and the power of choice. Without the, the ability to opt out out of what God had intended for humanity, humans would have left to be, uh, been left to be robots controlled by God. But that's not in his nature. Control is a violation of relationship and love. Freedom empowers relationship and love. So God says, listen, if you don't want me, if you want it your own way, you can have it. But I need to warn you, there are consequences. So you're familiar with the story, Adam and Eve exercise their option for independence. And that's the second tree. God doesn't give up on humanity. It's not like he sees the mess and says, well, like an old piece of paper, I'll crump this up, crumple it up and toss it away. He immediately goes to work on finding ways to redeem and restore humanity. And in Genesis 12, we learn of a fellow named Abraham, and we discover that God has a plan. He's looking for a covenant family to form in our world that he can bless and through whom he can bless the whole world. 
And so he partners in covenant with Abraham, and there's a tree in a place called Mamre, and God and Abraham connect several times in that place, and then covenant is formed, and God's faithfulness is displayed over and over and over again. Us as humans, even in covenant with God, struggle to keep our end of the agreement, and God is still so faithful to us. And after three trees, we realize there's hope, there's progress, there's faithfulness of God, there's covenant, but there's still tension. There's still things that need to be dealt with. And in between tree three and tree four, we find somebody like Isaiah. And actually a lot of the Old Testament lives between tree three and tree four in this tension of, wow, there sure are a lot of consequences for what we've chosen independence-wise in our world. And there's also this sense of hope because God is taking action through covenant family and leading us towards a future of some kind. But there's this tension of we're still grappling with realities that are difficult, like a sense of disgrace when humanity is aware of how they've fouled things up between them and God and with one another. There's this sense of almost being outcast from God's world and outcast from one another. And there's this sense of disgrace and shame that can even be experienced by us as humans in our own sinfulness and brokenness. So there's disgrace. And then there's death is still happening. It's rampant. It was rampant then. It's still rampant now. Some of you have seen and heard of just how awful it is in Turkey and Syria right now, an earthquake this week. This morning, they're estimating minimum 28,000. Some news reports are saying now it's over 30,000 confirmed deaths from one earthquake, devastation and loss, pain, death. You know, it's one thing when somebody lives a long, faithful life and they die and there's still grief in that. But when, in an instant, 30,000 lives are taken suddenly, the pain is enormous. And our world feels it. By the way, those who are interested, our church is partnering with an organization that is helping in Turkey and Syria right now. So if you'd like to help with the humanitarian response in Jesus' name, there's options on our website where you can select and designate special gifts towards Turkey and Syria right now. There's death in our world. There's disgrace. And there's pain. Between tree three and four, those words, death, Disgrace, pain, they're everywhere. Now tree four comes along and that's the act of God's forgiveness, his gesture of forgiveness to humanity through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that begins dealing with the disgrace, doesn't it? And the fifth tree is the tree of renewal. In the Garden of Eden we find the tree of life and that's in Genesis, the very last chapters of the whole book in Revelation. We find that same tree reappears and it's this message from God. Listen, what I started with an intention for the world, I, I haven't given up on it. We're going to live in a new world, a new heaven, new earth together where the tree of life will be back and God will make all things new. And so you and I live in the tension between tree four and tree five, and so there still is some unresolve, and there, there still is some pain, and there's some death, but we're looking forward with faith and hope to the future. So we live between four and five, but Isaiah is living between three and four. This explains a little bit in the book of Isaiah, just even the structure and the theme of the whole book. If you look at the, the first 39 chapters, which make up part one of Isaiah, uh, the theme really is consequences. <laughs> 
boy, we've really messed this up with God and one another, haven't we? And there are consequences to that. And so the first 39 chapters are dedicated to going through that over and over and over again. And then chapter 40 through 66, the second half and second part of Isaiah is all about hope. Chapter 40 begins with these two words, comfort, comfort, and the tone and the mood of Isaiah changes swiftly and suddenly, and it's beautiful. Now, in chapters 24 through 27, there's this interesting time. It's in the first part of the book where it's all about consequences, but there's actually this three-chapter little stanza where there's a blend of both consequences and hope. And so today, we're going to spend a few moments in chapter 24, and then our main text is in 25. In 24, if you flip and uh, look at just sort of broadly at chapter 24, the first verse of chapter 24 is quite clear. There is devastation. There is devastation, and it it impacts everyone, and it impacts everything everywhere. Let's look at verse 2. After learning about devastation, it says it will be the same. For the priest as for the people, for the master as for the servant, for the mistress as for the maid, for the seller as for the buyer, for the borrower as the lender, for the debtor as the creditor. What is it saying here? This consequence, these consequences, this kind of pain, this kind of problem, it touches everyone. Look at verse 3. The earth will be completely laid to waste, totally plundered. So not only does this impact everyone, This brings impact everywhere. The first few trees that we learn of, that second tree in particular, and humanity choosing independence from God, brings about consequences to everyone, everywhere. Now, poetically and prophetically, Isaiah begins describing it a little bit. So let's read just quickly verse 4. And onward, listen to this. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth as people must bear their guilt. Therefore, the earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. Listen to this language. The new wine dries up and the vine Withers. So wine is now disappearing, and all the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is still. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. It really sounds like the world was intended to be a feast and a party, but the consequences have brought an end to that. Listen to this. No longer will they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. Uh, sorry, IPA lovers. Uh, that's a signal of God's judgment, I think. Bitter beer, so that's bad news for you. Um, the, verse 10, the ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy is turned to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gates will be battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations. Ugh. <laughs> And I mean, a lot of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, kind of feels like that. Man, consequences are hard. And God is just. And so when Isaiah describes it this way, there's this clear picture of consequences happen to everyone, everywhere, and it's canceled the party. And so in the way, in a way, Isaiah 24 is God saying, look at what you've done with our world. And then in Isaiah 25, he says, but now look at what I'm going to do. 
And I want you to turn with me. Who's ready for good news now after the party's done and all the devastation? Turn with me to chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. We're just going to look at these couple verses here, beginning at verse 6. And I think there's some just beautiful imagery that God displays for us to follow along in here. Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Well, that's nice news, isn't it? What a beautiful, beautiful text. Now, I wonder if you noticed a word appearing several times in these verses. I can't help but notice how often the word all shows up. Remember in chapter 24, the devastation is everywhere and it's experienced by whom? All people. And so what's God's heart? To address it and bring about a difference available to all people. Friends, God has always had a whole world heart. Right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God blessed humanity and he commissioned them to fill the earth with his blessing. Not stay in Eden just there, but expand and advance the borders of Eden so that it would fill the earth, so that all places and all people everywhere would experience the glory and wonder of God. Why? Because he has always had a whole world heart. Genesis chapter 12, when God is calling Abraham and speaking his promise and his blessing over him, he says to him, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed for, through you. In John 3.16, many of you know it well. For God so loved the world that whoever believes. And again, he's loving all the people. His heart is for all the people. In Mark chapter 16, he says, Jesus speaking, go into all the world, not just a little bit, not just a corner here or there, not just where you're comfortable or just where it's convenient. My followers go into all the world, fill the world with my presence and my message. Acts chapter 1, the Spirit is arriving to empower the church and the promise from God comes saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. Why? Because God's heart has always been for all people everywhere. In Timothy's, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy's, uh, God speaks quite clearly that he wants all to be saved. In the writings of Peter, it says that God is patient, wanting all to have the opportunity to come to repentance. In 1 John, it says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for who? Just a few people? No, for all people of the world. Habakkuk chapter 2, it says the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Why? Because God has always had a whole world heart. In Revelation, when everything is fulfilled, it appears to be an end, but it's actually a new beginning. And we see over and over again, especially in the last few chapters of Revelation, multitudes from every tribe and every tongue all over the world. Why? Because God is going to do what he set out to do, to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory and give everyone on earth the opportunity to know him. He's always had a whole world heart. And so it makes a lot of sense, I think, that when we find out the response to the doom and gloom and despair 
of Isaiah 24 is a party for all. He's always had an all-world heart. Everyone, everywhere. Now, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, I just love simplifying or realizing in simplicity what God is doing here. I see he's doing two things. Number one, he's giving his best for all. And number two, he's destroying the worst for all. I just love the language. That, now, I, I, if you've been around our church for long enough with me here, you've noticed that I happen to be interested in food. So I can't ignore passages of scripture that mention food. And, and here on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. Listen to how the NIV writes it. A feast of rich food for all people. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. If you look into the original language Hebrew, which Isaiah is written in, it's even more descriptive. And so, unfortunately, in English, we sometimes miss the point here. But literally in Hebrew, it's saying he's going to throw a banquet of fat things. Now, think about the Middle Eastern lifestyle. I mean, not everybody had a quality foods or a thrifty foods or a butcher nearby where they could just get whatever cut of meat they wanted. If there was a kill after a hunt, You know, you consumed some of the best stuff first to celebrate, and then you ate everything else, and there was a lot of dried up old pieces of flesh that there was just the meager little bits of protein that they had once in a while. So the idea of a banquet was, well, we're going to get to get people together, and we're going to eat the fat things. That's literally what it's saying in the Hebrew. Now, you've noticed that there's some repetition going on in this verse. I think that's fascinating. First, in the Hebrew, it says, He's going to throw a feast. There'll be uh, fat things there. And then when it repeats it later on, it says there's going to be fat things with marrow. Now, if you are into food at all, the marrow, I mean, there's a lot of rich flavor in marrow as well. And so this is the author's way under the inspiration of the Spirit saying, when God throws a party, there's going to be flavor upon flavor. It's going to be good. Don't you love how God budgets for parties? He doesn't budget like most churches do where we're like, well, can we save a dollar or two here? How cheap could we do this for? Now, if we could break up the pieces of meat as small as possible, put in a lot of water, add some kale to it. Well, no, kale's getting expensive. What else is cheap out there right now? Find the cheap thing, add that in. We can make this giant pot of soup and it'll go super far. And so he offers a, a nice little snack on a budget for everybody. Not at all. That's not the heart of God. He says, listen, I care about the whole world. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set a table and I'm going to tell everybody, you're invited here. You can eat with me. And this is so beautiful in the setting of the ancient Near East because in all the surrounding countries to Israel, there were stories constantly about the gods of their nations loving to eat too. But in their stories, the gods would only eat with one another. And so they created humans as slaves to help fill the table for them. And in beauty, God reverses the story, says, it's not like that at all. I'll make the food for you and invite you to my table. So you're not separate from me and a slave to me, but you're at the table sitting with me. That's what his heart is like. And he's not doing this pathetic little meal on a budget. He says, let's get the fat things. And then he wants to make sure his hearers heard it. Let's get the fat things with marrow. And then he says, let's get the wine. And again in the Hebrew, he says, the wine that's the best and the finest. And he says it twice. Again, I need to remind you, when the ancients were writing, parchments were rare. Ink was hard to come by. It wasn't like typing on a computer. You can just be as wordy as you want. 
Every word that appears in scripture appears with intentional precision and detail. Why would they waste parchment and ink on repeating the same thing a couple of times? To make sure the point was driven home very clearly for all of us. This is what God is like. He cares for all people and he wants to throw a feast for all people. A fine feast. He wants to give his best for all people. So he's doing two things. His best is being given to all people. And in this text, he's also, do you notice he's destroying a lot of stuff? He's destroying the worst for all people. Remember how we talked earlier about disgrace and death and pain. You read this text, and what is God destroying? All of that for all people. Don't you want this for everyone everywhere? I mean, has this been good news to your life? That God has a table and he invited you and I? I know that sometimes we get carried away and we actually think we're somewhat important and uh, that we matter, we have sort of a, a greater estimate of who we are in this world, and sometimes we've forgotten just sort of our place and how we fit. And yes, God has designed us with wonder and awe, and we're image bearers. But we're, we're very responsible for the brokenness in this world, aren't we? We don't deserve to be at a table with God. But when we were at our weakest and our worst, it says in Romans, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he said, I'd invite you to my table. And don't you want others to experience? You've begun to experience the best that God gives us. And you've begun to experience what it's like for God to destroy the worst things. You know, disgrace, pain, the sting of death. You, you've begun to experience that. And don't you want others to experience that too? Like think of some of your neighbors. Think of some of your coworkers. Think of some of the people you go to school with. Think, think of some of the people you see on the golf course or wherever you play and do whatever you do. You and I are in the tension between four and five, tree four and five. Most people are lost much earlier in the story, just after tree two, really. Stuck in their disgrace, struck, stuck in their brokenness, stuck in their pain, afraid of death trying to cope. And you and I have a real sense of hope. Don't you want that for other people too? God has a place at his table for your neighbor. And God has a place at his table for the nations. So what can, what can we actually do about this? If you're a practical kind of person, you might be thinking, okay, well, now what? When we talk about missions, often we come back to three words, and I'm going to give the same three words to you that I gave to you last year and the year before, and I promise you I'll give them to you next year and the year after that, and until you fire me or tell me to quit or something like that or God takes me home, this is what we do. We pray, we give, we go. All of us can pray. Today, as you were coming in, each household is leaving with this booklet, A Table for the Nations. It outlines our mission's priorities for this year. One of the ways you can use this booklet is keep it near your Bible or wherever you sit to pray. Leaf through it from time to time and ask God to guide you. Who, who should I be praying for? There's mission partnerships that we are engaged with around the world because God has a whole world heart. They need your prayers. Jesus said at one point, my house will be called what? A house of prayer, and then what does it say after that? 
for all nations. That's not talking about this church building. Where is the house of God? Who is the house of God? Let me ask you this way. Would you put up your hand if you're the house of God? Now keep your hand up. You're the house of God. Now, what did Jesus say? My house, that's you, will be called a house of prayer for the nations. You have an assignment. That's a job description. You can put your hand down now. When's the last time you prayed for the nations? I'm not wanting to impose a sense of guilt upon you, but I'm letting you know this is something you are called to, and we're all called to together. We pray, and we give. We can give of our talents and our abilities. We can give up our time. We can give up our energy. You can give your spare room to missions. Let me tell you how. In a month, we have the Watoto African Children's Choir coming to Comox to perform in our church building. It's going to be fantastic. A lot of people from the community will come. It helps raise funds for their work of rescuing orphans in Africa. Because we're hosting and have the privilege of doing that in our building here, we need nine host homes who would say, I'd have a couple of those children from the choir stay at our home. We need some drivers who can help people get around for the two days that they're with us. And there's a few other just particular, you know, some meals for the whole group. We just need some people to help out. In missions, we pray and we give. Maybe you could give your spare room. Maybe you could give a ride to a few people. Please pay attention for some emails coming your way and information in our e-bulletin on how you could sign up and say, sure, I'll host somebody or I'll, I'll drive somebody, I'll help somebody when Watoto's here. That's you participating in God's whole world heart for missions. And of course, and naturally coming out of a series on God and finances and giving, of course, giving includes our resources, our money. Um, I had somebody come to me in the lobby last week. Actually, I had a lot of people come to me to talk about this series that we've done called uh, Just Don't Preach About Money. And somebody said to me, can you please share stories about what's happening in our church right now? Because there are people experiencing real miracles, and we need to hear about this because it's really encouraging. And so I thought, okay, I'll share a few of the stories. So I'm not going to share any names, but... Um, I had one person come up to me, and their employer had made some pretty serious errors in payment, and then they were notified that they owed $3,100 in taxes that were missed, and due to family circumstances and all that kind of stuff, I mean, that month, they didn't have that sitting around, not, it's, not, it's not like, oh, easy, sure. So it's devastating news. I know for almost all of us in the room, none of us would want to wake up to an email or a call like that, um, but this individual did. And, you know, in moments like that, it can be tempting to kind of rethink your priorities when it comes to giving and things that you're doing. And they decided, God's faithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to him. And there was a lot of detail to the story, but within a short period of time, in a very surprising way, $3,100 exactly came to them. And then there was a top up on top of it, and so God took care of that need for them. And for them, it was an absolute miracle. Is that not wonderful? Okay, now if there are any of our RCMP officers in the room right now, I need you to close your ears. Um, somebody else who will remain nameless, let me know that they got a speeding ticket. And they told, shared the story. I, it actually does sound like it was unjust, but they were like, I'm not going to dispute it. it. It is what it is. Um, some time passes, they're supposed to pay up on their ticket, and you know, in that period of time, they had been paid, and it was time to tithe, and in a funny stroke of irony, 
uh, they realized, you know, the speeding ticket and my tithe are the exact amounts. And it's tempting in those moments to think, I could just use this money there. <laughs> you know, because the law is pretty important. You don't want to ignore that ticket. And as we learned through the series, the first and the best belongs to God. It's non-negotiable. We just follow through on that and we trust him with the rest. And so in that moment of sort of consideration and temptation, they opted for, I'm going to be faithful to what God's called me to do. I'm going to give my tithe and then I'm going to figure out how we scrounge the money together to pay off the ticket. Time comes for them to pay the ticket. They go in. RCMP officers, I hope yours are closed. And... Uh, they had lost the record of the ticket there. So they said, well, we don't have a record of this. You don't have to pay. <laughs> Is that not amazing? It's beautiful. I, for them, that was absolutely a miracle. I had some people write in to me, and I'm going to read from what they've written. One person said this. I, share, I wanted to share a little of what we've been experiencing as a result of the current message series on giving. We decided to make some changes on how we give to the Lord after pondering what we've learned. And in particular, <clears throat> they had previously been tithing on their net income, and then they felt challenged through the series that actually, if the government taxes us on gross, then why don't we, of course we should give on our gross instead of our net. And that, but that's an adjustment, and that's more money out than in, it, it seems. And so they followed through with that because, we, and they carry on to say, because we wanted to be obedient to his word and live out our lives with open hands. Since making that decision, we have experienced the following. A bank randomly gave us a $150 rebate on our mortgage. Um, we all of a sudden uh, received an extra $100 a month in child tax support from the government. And uh, this person is self-employed and received uh, referrals, new referrals to potentially three clients that they were meeting with that day. Uh, so that was sudden and new for them. We know that this is God at work. And they were just so encouraged about that. Somebody else wrote in and said this. Um, someone during the series talked about tithing from your gross and not just your net. It really hit me that we were not fully trusting the Lord in, term of, in terms of our finances. So we made the commitment to tithe from our gross and not just our net. Since then, um, some things began to unfold. I've always wanted, this is great. I just love how honest people are about things. And I've always wanted this gaming system called a Steam Deck for a couple of months now. <clears throat> These are like adults, not a teenager writing into me. <laughs> but I didn't have any way of monetarily justifying the purchase. They had told me this story in person as well, and they said, you know, God has blessed our household. Of course we have the money, money for us to buy really whatever we want, but it just didn't seem like it was, you know, I, I didn't need it, but I really, really wanted it. Um, so I remember speaking to the Lord and pretty much putting that item in his hands. Have you ever prayed about a, an item like a gaming system? <laughs> they did. <clears throat> I knew uh, that it wasn't a need, but it really was uh, a nice idea to have something like that as I travel quite a bit. Within that same week, I received an email from my boss that had authorized us to have five annual days of leave suddenly paid out. In my entire 18-year career with this organization, we have always been told that we must use our leave within the year, and any that's not used will never be paid out, and suddenly, now I can receive a five-day payout. That was a huge surprise. 
I told my wife, and she joked that it would be amazing if the amount came to exactly the cost of the Steam Deck, the gaming system. But she reminded me to tithe first. <laughs> all in all, the five annual days, minus my full tithe on that gross, this is so interesting, came to the exact amount to the dollar of the Steam Deck, right to the dollar. More so than receiving the item, it was a huge aha moment for myself and my spouse that God is good and he wants us to trust him with all things big and small. Is that not wonderful? Now, when Jesus famously said, seek first, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. I don't know that we thought Steam Decks were included in that. But the emphasis is where? On the Steam Decks or on Seek First? And I think all of these stories that I've shared with you today are examples of people saying, you know, here's a little decision I can make here, or here's a little decision or a big decision I can make here. And it's part of me seeking first and look at how God supplies in the process and through the story. And so maybe there's this, maybe there is something to seeking first God's kingdom. Maybe there is something that occurs when we actually extend ourselves just a little bit in trusting God in new ways and he shows signal of response. It's funny, Laura and I, just for anybody who wonders about this kind of stuff, I mean, we do our best, we're faithful in our regular tithes and in our regular missions giving and all of that and we try to grow our ability to do that. And sometimes we hear about the stories of other people being blessed when this stuff goes on and then our dishwasher broke and we're worried about one of our washers and dryers and we're like, well, hey, God, did you forget about us here? And so if you're in that part of the story too, it's okay, God's faithful. But we celebrate with those who are experiencing new wonders of God's provision and just how he is. As a church, several years ago, our mission's goal for the year was $40,000 and by God's grace, it was met the next year. 2021, we set a goal of $50,000. We felt stretched in it, but trusted God, and it was met. Last year, we set a goal of $60,000. Our missions committee felt uncomfortable, but we were trusting God, and it was met. This year, our goal, if you've seen the booklet in the last pages, is $70,000. And so, as a missions committee, several of us, as we're dialoguing through, there's some discomfort of, whoa, what if this, or what if that, or remember recession, and ah, all this. But as a church, we're not going to shrink back. We want to continue to extend ourselves, trusting that as we prioritize, as we seek first the kingdom of God, he will continue to provide as well. Why? Because everyone, everywhere matters to God, and I think they should matter to us as well. So if you're newer to our church and you haven't gotten on board with some missions engagement, I invite you this year, consider giving monthly to missions, even if it's as little as $5 a month. You're just sacrificing one coffee a month so that it can help somebody else in the world. If you begin giving even $5 a month to missions, not skimming off your tithe, but over and above that to missions, when you give even $5 a month to missions, you are sending you uh, relief, relief to the Ukraine. When you send even $5 a month to missions through our church, you are sending food to dis disaster-struck parts of our world. When you begin giving even $5 a month to missions, you are sheltering an AIDS orphan in Africa. When you begin giving even $5 a month to missions, you are rescuing a girl from sex slavery in Romania. When you begin giving even $5 a month to missions, you are offering dignity and education to that girl who's rescued. When you begin giving even $5 a month to missions, you're helping a refugee family in Southeast Asia be rescued, be safe, and have the opportunity to be discipled in Jesus' name. 
when you give even $5 a month to missions, maybe you start this month for the rest of this year, you're helping present the gospel to people trapped under the weight of the caste system in India and helping them to know, you know what? They're invited to the table too. At even $5 a month given to mission, you're part of that as well. So we pray, we give, and we go. Friends, you and I are called to go across the street, across the hall, and the school, across from your office to the other person's office. We're called to go. Yesterday in the morning and the evening, we were able to present to our church family that this year we have the opportunity to participate in two missions trips to Guatemala. One for men, the end of October, one for women at the beginning of November. You're going to begin hearing more about these opportunities, how you can learn more, uh, explore if you want to be involved in that. You need to go on a missions trip. It helps people there, but it, it does a big thing in your heart. And you need to go. Why? Because everyone everywhere matters. I'm going to try to land this message and help us towards communion in a moment, and it's probably going to come in a clunky way here, but here's how it's going to happen. I want us just to consider for a few moments two, the two last chapters in the book of Romans, chapter 15 and chapter 16. For several months now, my devotional reading personally has been in the book of Romans, and I decided to stretch myself in my devotional world, um, and it was uncomfortable, and I, to be honest, most of the time I didn't really enjoy it, but it was very good for me. And so I read through the book of Romans simultaneously through three translations and one commentary. And it was very slow and methodical. And I prefer reading at just different paces. But it was a good discipline because it was different for me. And there is so much uh, dense theological doctrinal stuff that lives in the book of Romans. And it's hard to track with. And then once I got into 15 and chapter 15 and 16, it was like, okay, now we're back into some more practical things. And so I just loved some of the stuff I was finding there. Of course, I loved all the other things as well, but it was just challenging, hard stuff to work through. I want to just share a couple things that leapt off the pages of Scripture into my soul for moments 15 and 16. And it's the kind of stuff that you don't always expect to speak to you from Scripture. Listen to this. Isaiah, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 23, Paul is concluding his letter and he writes this. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, some would believe he was writing in Corinth at the time to the church in Rome. And since I have been longing for many years to see you, Paul had actually never met or been to, he hadn't met the, the churches of Rome. And he's longing to meet them. He's, he's longing to have a relationship with them. So verse 24, he says, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Can everybody say Spain? Spain. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there for, uh, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Um, there's, there's differences of opinion that exist in the scholarly world as to why the book of Romans was written. Paul had never met those people. It was a church that had formed in Rome, but he's still writing authoritatively as an apostle to them. Why is he writing this letter? Some people maybe didn't love that we just had a series all about giving, but what's ironic is there's great scholarly evidence that Paul actually is planning to shift his home base to the church of Rome, and he wants them to become his main supporting and sending church. And so he's introducing himself. He's introducing the richness of the gospel to them. And essentially, the whole book of Romans, which might take about an hour to read out loud, 
is an appeal for an offering. So if you don't like like churches that talk about offerings, I suggest you just don't read the book of Romans. I know that uh, there's a lot of dense and important theology there, but now you have to throw that out because essentially Paul's saying, here's the gospel, and by the way, I'm writing this because I'm coming. I might live among you so that you can send me to Spain. Now, I'm a maps person. I love travel. I love the world. And so there's been many times I've read that and just sort of breezed by. I'm like, oh, that's so neat that in the ancient world, Spain was mentioned. This time through was the first time I paid attention. I'm like, that's, that's fascinating, Spain. Why is Paul saying he's going to Spain? Later in chapter 15, he mentions another little town. And in the known Roman world of the time, that town was as close to the border of as north as you can go in the world as possible. And Paul says, the gospel's been preached there. And then he mentions Spain. I'm going to Spain. Why Spain? In the Roman world, as, as far west as you could go in the whole world is Spain. And Paul's taking inventory of God's work through the church in its explosive first years. And he's observing, look, the gospel's heading south into Africa. Look, the gospel's heading east. Look, we've gone as far north to that mountain range as possible. We're, we're covering the globe with it. And then he realizes nobody's gone to Spain. He wasn't looking for a nice holiday. He saw nobody's been there. The gospel isn't in Spain yet. So I'm going to Spain. And I read that and man, it moved me. I thought, this is what God's heart is like. It's a whole world heart. God celebrates where his work is. And he's leaning in with interest to send people where his work isn't yet. And I read that and I thought, you know, there's a lot of Spain in the Comox Valley. It grieves me to think how many streets are there in the Comox Valley that don't have a single follower of Christ living in Christian witness present on that street. It's Spain. It needs someone to be sent there. How many workplaces, how many schools have very little Christian witness at all in this community? It's Spain. Somebody needs to be sent there. Where you happen to work, where you happen to live, you're not there by accident. You're there on purpose. Why God has a whole world heart. He needed somebody on Capilano Avenue to help bear witness to the love and grace of Jesus. So he sent us and he sent others there as well. Where are you? It was Spain, but now... It has a chance to be reached. I just love that detail. It's part of God's whole world heart. Now in chapter 16, and the worship team can rejoin me on the stage here. Chapter 16 is almost all greetings and names. You ever breeze by that stuff in scripture? I mean, I do lots. I mean, sometimes I'll slow down because it's just humorous to say the names out loud in many cases. You're like, how in the world do you say that? And what, what in the world might that mean? Why all the names included there? Paul has all kinds of greetings to give. I'll skip the first half of 16. Join with me um, halfway through verse 20. He's getting into his very final greetings. I want to point out a couple things to you. One of them I've had pointed out by others to me. And I, just, I just love it. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you. As do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. Verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter down, greet you in the Lord. In the ancient world that was dominated by an oppressive Roman Empire, if you were in slavery, you were nobody. You didn't really have personhood. You happened to look like a human, but you actually didn't count. 
And so when children were born to slaves in a household, the Roman world didn't really let them give them personal names. They were just given impersonal names in many cases. Names like first, second, and tertius, which means third. And here, Paul has written a masterpiece of theology and doctrine. And he's dictated it to a man. We don't know if he's still in slavery or free now, but his background is certainly slavery. And his name is Tertius. He was a nobody in Rome. He was just third born in his family. And Paul's, Paul's dictated under the spirit this beautiful masterpiece of God's work in our world. And it's as if Paul looks up to Tertius and says, do you want to say hello? And so Paul said, Tertius, really? Me? Yeah. You want to say something to the church in Rome? And so Tertius, who is a nobody, suddenly is writing words in scripture. I, Tertius, send greetings. I think it's such a beautiful illustration of what the table of God is like. Of course, we'd look at scripture and say, yeah, Paul, he, he deserves to be there. But you know who else belongs? Tertius. Let me carry on. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works. Now, that sounds like a pretty important uppity-up person, eh? And our brother Quartus. Who's Quartus? He's four. Probably his brother. <laughs> Send their greetings. Listen to that. Who's, who's sending the greetings? Gaius, whose hospitality we've enjoyed. Why is he saying that? Because Gaius is probably one of the house church leaders in Rome. And he would have been one of the people that had a little bit of wealth, had a little bit of space, and had a table. And said, come to my table. And the early church people would gather together, and they would share in communion together. And they would share in a meal, love feast, agape feast, eating a meal together. And who's at the table? Slaves? And Erastus, the city director, he's powerful, he's important. And Gaius is wealthy enough to own a home and have a table. And in God's world, they all belong in the same family. They're made equals. Paul turns to Tertius and says, you want to write some words on this too? Really me? Yeah. At God's table, you're invited too. You have got a brother, Cordus? Bring him along. That's great. We'd love Cordus. Any others? I don't know how to count in Latin higher than that, but... Now Paul writes saying this, now to him who is able to do that, put those people around the same table, to him who does that, to the one who has a heart for everyone everywhere, who's able to establish you by the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus, according to this revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that what all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be the glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. What a triumph. Tertius is writing it down and Erastus is mentioned and Gaius is mentioned and Paul's talking about Jesus, the only one on earth who has a heart for all people everywhere and could bring them around the same table and form a new family on earth. 
Let me conclude by reading for you Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, from the message translation. It says this, but here on this mountain, God Almighty will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all people, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. Yes, he'll banish death forever. God will wipe the tears from every face. He'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people wherever they are. Yes, God says so. Amen. That passage two times in the NIV says, on this mountain. On this mountain, God's preparing a feast. When Isaiah writes that, what is this mountain? That mountain is Zion in Jerusalem. That mountain is where Jesus went to the cross for us. I invite you to take your communion emblems right now. We're going to conclude in prayer here. And as we do, I'm going to invite our prayer ministry team to come up and make themselves available right now. One of the reasons we offer prayer ministry every week is because of that last tree in the five, especially this promise that God is going to make all things new. He's promised he will do it. And what's going on is right now he is doing it, which means we have a hope that the future in God can break into our present and make a difference. You might have a circumstance, a situation, a need in your life where you need the future realities in God's world to break in and make a difference here and now. These people would love to pray with you today. Would you join me in placing your hand over your heart as we conclude in corporate prayer right now? Father, we give you thanks for your work in our church, in our world, and we give you permission to work in our hearts right now. As we said yesterday in both the meetings, we give you permission this year to speak to our hearts about missions in fresh ways. Thank you that your whole world heart reached us. Now we want to go into your world on your mission, bringing your message, your ministry into the everyday stuff of this week. We need you. We need each other. We need the power of your spirit for this. Send us in all the above, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. 